Welcome to Scientific American Science Talk, posted on June 18th, 2015. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... For five years when I was there opening the misnets, every f- f- spring migration, we capture the same wood trash in the same net in the same lower position. That's ornithologist Eduardo Inigo Elias. He's a senior research associate with the Conservation Science Program at the Cornell Laboratory of Ornithology. He runs various programs related to the conservation of primarily migratory birds from the U.S. and Canada that go to Latin America where they winter and breed. It's the 100th anniversary of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology this year, so in April, I and my appropriately named Scientific American colleague Robin Lloyd traveled up to Ithaca to talk to a few of the scientists at the lab. You'll be hearing more of those conversations over the next few months. First, though, Eduardo Inigo Elias, who talked to us about the challenges of studying migratory birds and the potential beneficial effects in his field of the thawing of the U.S. relationship with Cuba. You'll hear Robin toward the end of the discussion. Migratory birds really present a real conservation challenge because there are because they don't respect national boundaries. Exactly. They are they're flying they might hit exactly. you know fifteen countries in the course exactly. of their of exactly. their normal lives. So exactly. you have to do so much coordination with all these exactly. local places. And in some of those places as you just touched the issue of not respecting boundaries, I just when I give you an example that for the last twelve years the Lab of Ornithology uh, have been involved in a research and conservation and training, building local capacity with biologists and scientists from Cuba. So you can imagine the amount of work that we have on the back from our lawyers <laughs> from Cornell University to get the permits to work through the Treasury Department and the State Department here in the U.S. But also has been a lot of paperwork to do, you know, the things that we want to do, collaborated with Cuban scientists. And our Cuban scientists have to deal also with their restrictions that they have. But we have been able to work together because there's over 350 species of birds that exist in the island of Cuba. And Cuba, everybody thinks that it's just one island. But Cuba is an archipelago of around uh, 3,000 islands, keys, rocks, uh, and the main island of Cuba, the second main island, the island of Juth or the island of Pines which is are very important for migratory birds. Of those 350, around uh, 175 species are migratory birds. And birds that we share populations with them, populations that are declining, populations of birds that we once share uh, or maybe still there. We don't know. It's the ivory bill woodpecker, for example. And other issues are with cranes. Another issue is short birds and waterfall are very important wetlands in Cuba that they have been protecting. And this is one of the things that very little we know, uh, you know, in this part because the barriers between the two countries, but also the language barrier between English and Spanish. But they have been protecting for the last 50 years huge portions of the country in a network of the national system of protected areas. They have been following all the UN conventions, such as the Ramsar Convention for Wetlands, the Convention for Biodiversity, and we have been able to partner with them and do these uh, collaborations for conservation on the ground. Uh, for example, with our colleagues from the Chicago Field Museum, the Cornell of Ornithology, and with support from the MacArthur Foundation, we have been able to implement uh, for almost 10 years management plans that 
We developed in joint expeditions with Cuban scientists and the people from protected areas, primarily looking for, you know, where are the wintering grounds for some of the species, but also looking for some of the endemic and very unique species in Cuba, such as the Fernandina flicker, uh, the smallest bird in the world, the bee hummingbird, and other, you know, species just to mention. Um, uh, and those models of uh, land protection that we did, those assessments, those reports, um, which are available in English and Spanish in the uh, website of the Chicago Field Museum, have been the key instrument that now Cuba has been using to elaborate all their management plans for all the protected areas. So we did only 10, but today, you know, they have for every single of the uh, 75 protected, 76 protected areas and uh, land that is under some conservation restrictions. So the thawing of the U.S.-Cuba relationship is a really big deal for you and your colleagues. I think I think so. Yeah, I think is uh, you will see that uh, in the future there's going to be more important um, strength of what activities we do. And you know, I know many other institutions like the uh, uh, Smithsonian um, have been very interesting to collaborate with Cuba because it's always one of the gaps that we have on information. Uh, I don't know if you follow up the big news, art- the article that just came out in the news on the um, the Black Pearl Warbler, who migrates to one flight straight to the Atlantic and makes all the way to uh, South America. But sometimes they stop. And the place they stop is eastern Cuba. Mm. And I just recall one day in uh, the year uh, 2009, when I was there around the end of February, beginning of um, the end of March, beginning of April, and I was there with David Winkler, a professor from Cornell, and we were both teaching a workshop on ornithology, and we opened that morning the nets, and suddenly we're just going to teach the students the feathers and the molting patterns because they're so important, and for our surprise, when we put the nets, boom, one of those birds went into our net. And it's like, you know, Eastern Cuba is so important for migratory birds. And there's a famous book that came out here in the U.S. called Soaring with Fidel, which I think was uh, published by a professor from Harvard University on English writing. But his, he dedicated this book to the history of the osprey and all the people from the U.S. as well from Cuba, who have been committed and dedicated to the conservation and understanding the migration of the osprey. And it shows that almost 90% of the population of ospreys from New England as well from the east part of Canada migrate or winter in Cuba. So it's, it's, it's very important. Yeah, when these birds are making these long-distance migrations, especially over water, yeah. if there's a some green land down there. Yeah. That can be a, yeah. a hugely important spot for them. Exactly. And, and there are many conservation challenges on the ground because sometimes that spot that they see a huge wetland could be a fish farm. And then there's conflict with human because they will be, you know, taking part of the food that we need. <laughs> so there are some issues for conservation, but I think it has been very well managed and, uh, there are many challenges ahead, and I think many opportunities for continuation of the collaboration between the two uh, group of scientists. We heard that you're not here all that much because you're in the field. So <laughs> yes. what what is it uh, in a typical year for you? Where might you go? Okay. What will ex- you be doing? For example, I'm 
I I spend a lot of the time also with the students from both Cornell as well from students from other universities and research centers across Latin America. And um, when we were working in Cuba, we were spending a lot of time there in Cuba teaching and training these students for their master, for their PhDs, conducting jointly research or expeditions. And I was coordinating, bringing many of my colleagues from Cornell, Lab of Ornithology as well, Cornell University, and other institutions such as um, the um, Chicago Field Museum. But sometimes uh, I have been doing expeditions with colleagues here to understand the ecology of some of the species in islands. This is one of the areas that I have been very interested to understand the life history of birds, both marine and terrestrial, in, in islands. I don't like much to be in the ocean. You know, I get a little bit sea motion sickness, but... I have survived um, in long trips for five days or four days trying to reach one island, such as the Socorro Archipelago Islands in Mexico or the um, Guadalupe Islands, where we have a species that we share, uh, such as the Lyson albatross, who has populations in Midway, in Hawaii, and a huge population of around 1,000 breeding uh, birds in the Guadalupe Island. And with colleagues from other countries, in this case it has been Mexico, uh, the country where I was born and raised. Uh, we have been working with some of the scientists there to understand how to reintroduce or how to restore populations of many of these island birds and seabirds primarily, because many of these islands for centuries were wiped out by all the introduced species such as rabbits, sheep, cats, and our colleagues from island conservation, um, ecology group, or HESI from Mexico, they have been doing a lot of efforts and collaboration with many people from the U.S. Um, in eradication of uh, many of these invasive species in the islands and restore. So that's one of the most rewarding projects that we have right now. In fact, I was just working in, and that's why you see all these books and messages, because I'm traveling on Sunday to um, a conference with all the government agencies from the U.S., Canada, and Mexico, from NOAA Fish and Wildlife Service to a conference called the Trilateral Wildlife Meetings, which is an area where we share our expertise, an area where we share opportunities for collaboration with challenges. And one of the big things that we have now is uh, conservation of birds that are spending part of the life cycle or all the life cycle of their life in islands in the three countries or in the waters of the three countries. So we're talking like islands of Vancouver or all the archipelagos from Bering to Baja California, but also all the Gulf of Mexico and part, in the case of Mexico, part of the Caribbean coast, uh, but also all the waters in the Atlantic from Canada and the U.S. And what we are trying to understand is what are the species that we are responsible for conservation, what are the most in danger, where are the actions already on the ground, and where do we have gaps to better improve the conservation of some of these species. And not only include the, the pelagic and marine birds, but we are coastal birds. We include also the land birds that are stopping in those islands. Many of these islands are key in the migration of many of the species that are jumping from point to point. So that's you know part of the typical thing I do, field work, but also meetings and preparing databases. I, I noticed there's a book on your desk called 
the dawn of conservation diplomacy, which <laughs> which gives you an idea of the kind of things we've been talking about. Exactly. Where you, you have to do this kind of thing where you're not just a research scientist, yeah. you're also a diplomat. You need to be, um, you know, there are many challenges, especially you learn this with migratory birds, that there is a natural resource shared by everybody. And uh, there are many issues that affect, you know, when the oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico happened, you know, Everybody was calling here and ringing, oh, Eduardo, where are the people that you know in Cuba that can help us to understand, you know, if the water changed in that direction and the oil starts going to the shore, what are going to be the impacts, especially now that the migratory birds are moving? And it's like, okay, you know, it's going to be difficult <laughs> because even them they have uh, restrictions on how to move, not because it's n they are not allowed, it's just simply they don't have the money to move around, you know. It's just very expensive, the gasoline in Cuba. As as somebody who really studies migratory birds, just what what one thing maybe just pops to the top of your head that still after all these years just amazes you about the physical achievement of some of these creatures? Well, as, as it was put in the paper last week, you know, somebody that is around 10, 15 grams. It's about half an ounce, a warbler. Yeah, can jump with all the energy that is storing in fat and makes the decision, okay, now I'm in condition, the weather are perfect to jump, and let's keep going to South America. So it's a trip of how many thousands of miles? Well, <laughs> <laughs> depends on where they go, because right. some of them go all the way to the nonstop, to the north part of the Orinoco and some part of the Amazon in, in, the, in Brazil. But some of them continue the migration and stop in Colombia, in the Andes, and then from there continue south. And some of other birds, like the famous um, ruby trotted hummingbird, they also jump once they go to uh, Cape Cod, and I'm sorry, to, to Cape May in, in uh, New Jersey, and then they jump and they arrive in the Yucatan Peninsula. So there are many different flyways, especially for the small passerines and uh, tiny birds. That's the, the, the thing that it just amazed me every day. Right. I, this, is, this is, you're talking, they make a nonstop flight. Yeah. They might make a quick stop, you know, once they reach a certain place yeah. and then hop somewhere else. But a nonstop flight of many thousands of miles without any food, just, yeah. They just keep going, keep going and use up whatever stores they have to make this trip. And, and, and there are challenges in the environment because when we have weather conditions that change, suddenly they have to drop. They have to go on the ground. And those stopover sites are so important for conservation. I remember when I was a student back in the late 70s, early 80s, I was with two colleagues, uh, Dr. John Rapol, who already retired from the Smithsonian, and Dr. Mario Ramos, who already passed away. And we were putting nests, mist nettings, in the cloud forest of Los Tuxtlas Mountains in the state of Mexico in Veracruz. And for five years when I was there opening the mist nets, every f f spring migration, we captured the same wood trash in the same net, in the same lower position of the net. So it was in the lower right side of the net that always came to that place every year, every spring. It was not like it was a silly bird. It was so showing us that for me that that site is so important and is so unique to have these places where they stop.
This bird was banded, so you knew it was exactly the same individual. Same individual, and he was lucky that it survived five years, at least when I was there. This banding project, when I was taken by many other colleagues, but um, it's just really important to see those things. This map that shows the migration routes, if you're ever on an airplane and there's the airplane magazine, the airline magazine, and at the back it shows the different routes. You'll see a map of North and South America that shows all the different routes. And so this is, it looks very much like that, except most of those uh, airline routes are, are east-west and a few are north-south. This is almost exclusively north-south. Yeah, but also, you know, what it, one thing that is not showing in the map that is happening in the continent is also the austral migrations. Birds that are moving from the south into Argentina or from the south from Argentina into the Caribbean and breed. But also, we also have another very important migration that is happening, for example, in the high peaks on the Andes which is the altitudinal migration from many of the birds that breed and are endemic and are unique to the highlands of those mountains that they move up and down depending on the wet and dry seasons, looking for resources. And that's very important. It also happened here in the U.S., especially in Arizona, with some of the um, species that have some altitudinal migration as well. So those are very complex. I don't know if you will have a chance to go and see or eBird team, the the amazing data, because that's, you know, show you an illustration of, of what we thought back in the 70s that was a migration. But today you will see with the citizen science efforts, you know, all my colleagues who work in the eBird team, they have been putting all these mathematic models to show you how the birds move, and it's all amazing. Can you just talk a little bit more about... Uh the fish farms situation. I hadn't really thought about that with the proliferation of fish farms, and it sounds like yeah. those exist also in Cuba. Uh, there, there's an impact on nesting sites and, and stopover sites. Is that well, right? No, it is not necessarily um, a fish farm for um, sea, sea sea farming. It's in freshwater, so it's for tilapia and other kind of fish, um, and. In some of the places in eastern Cuba, they have been uh, trying to get, you know, a better source of protein because part of the U.S. embargo has been restricting the the importations of proteins for the people or the farming for any other animals. And they have been looking on alternatives such as the tilapia farming and other fishes, uh, carps. And uh, they have been finding very few occasions where all sprays, you know, going to the farm and perch in the wires or perch in the top of a telephone and predates. But there is no hard data to show uh, yet what is the impact in this location. But I think if we look into the data um, of impacts from birds to farming, oh, we have many examples with very good data here in North America with um, um, ospreys, but also with uh, cormorants that go into the fish farming and they can have severe impact. So they have to use some nets on top of the uh, farm to avoid the, the birds to jump in. It's a smorgasbord for these, yeah. for these fish the catching birds. are unbelievable.
You heard Eduardo Inigo Elias refer to eBird. That's a Cornell Lab of Ornithology online database by which birdwatchers anywhere on the planet can upload their sightings and help increase the resolution of our information on exactly what birds are hanging out where and when. They're welcoming all input, even if it's just another starling. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can also check out our collection of e-books. The latest in the series, just released, is titled Exoplanets, Worlds Without End. Look for the book section in the menu on the Scientific American homepage. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at SIAM. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.